Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by mule deer hunting legend and owner of Rockslide, Robbie Denning. Robbie's an animal when it comes to hunting big mule deer, so much so that he only hunts big mule deer. We discussed the story of his first big mule deer buck, how deer hunting has changed, different camping styles, recognizing big buck country, dealing with drought conditions, and the top 10 glassing mistakes. And today's episode is brought to you by Spartan Forge. And the Spartan Forge Outfitter utilizes years of military background and machine learning to pull from millions of data points to accurately predict deer movement, including GPS data, 30 years of weather, academic and state research. They're using science rather than someone's opinion to figure out the movement for your specific hunting area so that you make sure you are hunting on the best days. The Outfitter is available online and will become an app soon. The price will increase at that point, but if you buy it now, you're locked into the lower rate. You can use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 25% off of the Outfitter at SpartanForge.ai. Tethered is a company founded on the principles of educating the hunting community on saddle hunting while creating the most innovative, lightweight, safe products for saddle hunting. They have mobile hunting gear options for all types of hunters and continue to push the envelope. To learn more about Tethered and saddle hunting, head over to tetherednation.com. Maven is building the highest quality optics at half the price of their competitors through their direct consumer business model. They want to create the best optics for the job, period. Their products are back with a lifetime, no fault warranty, and an incredible customer experience. I'm using the B2 9x45 binos in all my western hunts. It is a low light monster, allowing you to see through the binos longer than you can with your naked eye. You can use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order at mavenbuilt.com. And we have a new partner on here, which I've had this, I've had the CEO and founder of this company on many times before. Um, and I've been a, a longtime member of this app, uh, but they've been doing some really cool things. So Go Wild. Go Wild is a free social community built by hunters for hunters. Join me on Go Wild today and you can download gowild.com to get 10 bucks to spend on gear for just setting up your account. So they have a bunch of gear available, just about anything you can want on through the app that you can purchase it right through the, the social platform and you can keep unlocking go wild rewards. And you can now see my complete gear list setup online and you can download the app again at gowild.com. Use the code East Meets West to save 10% off of all hunting gear on the website. So all the hunting gear, when you use East Meets West, you get 10% off all in one place with the Go Wild app. So check that out. It's uh, not censored, no algorithms, nothing like that that you can find on the app. It's a really cool place for outdoor enthusiasts, hunters, anglers, everybody in between. So check that out and yeah, hope to, hope to see you there. And, uh, yeah, this is episode 199 and right now, currently I'm in Colorado. 
I'm recording this like three weeks ahead of time, this introduction here, but I'm in Colorado, hopefully, I mean, September 7th, I think this releases. So hopefully by now, maybe you got a big buck down. I don't know. That's, that's my goal. <laughs> We're going to be there for, you know, almost two weeks of hunting and it's, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a grind. And like I said, hopefully at this time on episode 200, which can't believe I'm hitting 200 already, which will be next week's episode, I'll be able to release the story of that hunt and how it went down. So hopefully it's super positive and, uh, I'm sure it'll be a great story to, to tell either way. So can't wait for that. If any of you guys are going out West and you guys and girls going out West hunting or any of your seasons are opened up, good luck. It's that time of year. And, uh, m- most importantly, be safe. Robbie Denning, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, man. After epic battles, Microsoft versus Apple, Apple comes out on top. Uh, you're on a Mac, I'm on an iPhone, and we have great sound. Yeah. Sorry, Bill Gates, but you tend to suck when it comes to this stuff. I hate to say it, but you do. I, I totally agree. I, I actually went away from an iPhone for a while to an Android, and I honestly hated it. And once I got back, and my iPhone links to my MacBook, and everything's just, <laughs> it just flows. It's- Exactly, man. No matter how you feel about big tech, those guys got a got a system down. And so, anyways, glad we got through the technical difficulties. Here we are talking about mule deer. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm excited to get to talk to you. It's it's funny because I've been reading your book. I'm probably about I don't know three quarters of the way through it, and I just just got it not that long ago, and I've been diving right. diving into it like crazy. And this will be my first year mule deer hunting specifically. So I'm trying to soak up as much as possible. And it's been awesome, uh, dude. It'll help you. And, you know, even though it's titled hunting big mule deer, I I really believe in if, even if you're not after the biggest buck on the mountain that, you know, we, I can just get you there faster. If you're, if your standards aren't as high, I mean, all those techniques that are in there, it it, it applies to all bucks. And, you know, I, I pass up, you know, I don't know, maybe not hundreds, but dozens and dozens of bucks a year, you know, sometimes pretty nice bucks too. So I know, I know all those techniques work and, and, uh, you'll know, you'll know you're doing it right when you're, uh, when you're passing up deer that don't know you're there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about it and I love, love diving into it and hearing from your stories from, you know, way back to now and, you know, the, the transitions and everything. And that's, you know, what I wanted to talk to you about here, but first Robbie, for anybody that doesn't know who you are, give me a, give me your elevator pitch on who's Robbie Denning. You bet. I'm 52 years old. I live in a little town in Idaho. It's called Iona. I'm just outside of uh, Idaho Falls, um, Southeast Idaho, born and raised here. I live about a mile from the house I was born in. Um, didn't make it very far in life, but love, love mule deer hunting. You know, my family were big hunters. They hunted kind of everything, you know, bears, elk, um, you know, steelhead fish. They did all that stuff, but I particularly fell in love with mule deer hunting. I just liked, uh, I like the country they live in. I like how they live, you know, bachelor groups early in the year. And then, you know, typically solo mid fall, maybe with another buck or so. And then, um, and then the rut, you know, I got to grow up in the heyday of rut hunting. 
in Southeast Idaho, we had, you know, we were able to hunt the rut till the, you know, early nineties on OTC tag. So I kind of got to experience all of that. And, you know, I respect all hunting, um, you know, elk, sheep, antelope, all that other stuff. I make fun of antelope hunters though, cause that's pretty easy, but that's another <laughs> podcast, but anyways, just, just teasing guys. But it, it, I just, I just really, really like mule deer and, and, and the challenge. And, you know, in, in a way it's harder than ever, you know, some of it has to do with just competition for tags and, and, um, you know, just how mule deer hunting has changed. Part of it is we're hunting them a lot earlier than we used to, um, cause they don't allow rut hunting. And, um, um so it, it is really challenging, but that just keeps pulling me back every year. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's cool to hear because it's funny. I've noticed that when I talk to people that, that are, are really, successful and have done it for a long time most of them have like a specialty like they're focused on that thing like you're focused on big mule deer and you excel at it because it's so tough to be able to oh i'm gonna jump from mule deer to elk for a while or i'm gonna do this and and i i kind of had to do that with with hunting whitetails and turkey hunting like i was like Mm -hmm. I, i love turkey hunting but uh, I, I need to spend some time doing other stuff during that time of year so I can focus on whitetails fully when that time comes, or I'm going to be, I'd rather be scouting yeah. for whitetails when I have the time, because that's like what my main focus is. And it's, it definitely seems that you're the, the same way there. Oh, dude, I, I love elk hunting, but every day I'm elk hunting, I feel like I'm cheating on mule deer. Like I could just be learning one more thing or scouting or, you know, spending one more day on, on a tag. And so, you know, that's just kind of what's drawn me away from it. You know, I did all that stuff. I, I killed elk with my bow and rifle. I did all that stuff growing up. It was awesome, but I just, I just, I was just kind of average at it. And, and I felt like I could really excel at mule deer. And plus they're, they're just hard to find, you know, big bucks are, and so you got to focus. And so that's really what I had to do is just come up with a way to focus on it. So it's all I hunt right now at this point in my life. It's not that I won't hunt, hunt other things later, but you know, right now it's, it's all mule deer all the time for me. Yeah. And so what, what kind of drew you specifically to the, you know, to big mule deer, like once you kind of transitioned from it or was it always that way from the beginning or was that kind of a, a period of time? I think, I think what drew me to it is as I grew up, I realized that, wow, you know, there, there was good buck hunting around here back then. And, um, that, wow, a guy can spend 40 years in good buck country and never kill a big buck. And, you know, I have relatives God bless these guys, but you know, they just, it's not that they were bad hunters. I mean, these guys kill elk bears, you know, all that other stuff, but they were never killing big mule deer. The only one in my family that was killing any big ones was my dad. And, um, you know, he just had a good eye. He was a really good shot, but he just thought about it differently. And he wasn't casual about it. A lot of people we go hunting with, you know, you get up to the mountain, you know, we're going to do a deer drive and then we're going to be back at 10 AM drinking coffee and eating ham sandwiches and fighting over the last donut. And that was kind of deer hunt, you know, and it was a culture. It was fine. It was really cool. But my dad was like, no, I'm, you know, I'm taking my horse and I'm, I'm, I'm going to pack in where nobody else is, or we're going to pack on the road. That's coming on the road. You guys can hunt around here, but I'm going to, I'm going to pack in from the road. I mean, it was just, just kind of watching him do that. And, and he killed some really good bucks. And, and so it just kind of taught me that you kind of got to do it on purpose and that you can be hunting with guys that are really good hunters that will never, ever kill one. They don't even hardly see them. And yet that you can pull them out right, right from underneath them if you do it right. And so I think that kind of, I, I wanted to, to do that. You know, I wanted to, 
kind of be like my dad. And, and then I met other buck hunters as I got older that were, were kind of the same way. And I just realized it's, it's not a casual pursuit if you want to get the big ones, you know, it's not, it's, it's, especially if you're not wealthy, it's not a casual pursuit. You got to really be focused at it. And, and, you know, and again, I, you know, try to go get a great big bull elk. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's the same. It just seems like I see a lot more big, big bull elk than I do big mule deer now. And, um, so, so that's kind of what drew me to it. I wanted, I, w- I wanted the challenge. I think I said that a little while ago. I just wanted the challenge. Yeah, no, d- definitely. Is, is like, w- was your approach to it uh, like a year round approach or is it like you're just all yeah. in during the season or how, how does that look for you? Year round, man. My son and I got up this morning and we were in, we were in the field by seven o'clock bucking hay. You know, that's a, that's a term out West here. We're loading hay on a flatbed trailer. And why are we doing that? Because uh, I have five head of horses. I got to feed them. And, um, you know, the, the grass quits growing here in November. You got to have, you got to have feed for them. Why do I keep five horses so I can hunt? I can hunt mule deer and, and, and I can hunt them in the hardest places that, that they grow. So even today, I was, I was getting ready for mule deer because if, if I wasn't a mule deer hunter, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like horses. They're a blessing, but I wouldn't put up with all that <laughs> just to, just to have a thousand pound animal that, you know, craps all over the place and is expensive and, and all that stuff, you know, they're, they're just an extension of my mule deer hunting. So, so, so yeah, it's, it, it's year round. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I'm doing something every day, but you know, I, I know I'm always thinking about it and that happened young, dude. I remember being like 18 or 19 years old. I worked in a machine shop and man, I just, I, I mean, there was hunters there, but it, they were kind of casual about it, man. It was all I could think about. In fact, I remember making these parts and I could put them on the lathe and I could turn the lathe on and I had like 10 minutes that the lathe would sit there and turn this part and I could do whatever I wanted, man. I would walk out the back door and you know, there's Taylor mountain right behind Idaho falls. And I would just sit there and stare at it and wish, wish that I was up there deer hunting, you know? So yeah. it was in my blood. It really, it really was, you know, and, and the challenge of it. And, um, um, you know, that just, that just, it's almost can't put my finger on it, but I know one thing I'm 52 and the fire is, is just as big now as, as it was then, you know, I mean, it's scouting season right now. It's what is it? The 13th of July. I think I've already got, I've already been in the field about four days. I've got my, my trail cameras out. I'm getting the horses shoot. I'm going to be in the back country here pretty soon, probably in the next week or two. And, you know, that'll just continue, you know, as much as, as, as work and life allows me you know, clear up until my last tag, which just depends on the year. That's usually late October, sometimes mid-November, depends on, on the tag situation. Yeah. And so how, how have you seen mule deer hunting change, you know, from when you first, you know, you're 18, 19 years old being excited, like, you know, as you got more experience, did it ever get easier for you or did condi- external conditions change things? What, what did that look like? Well, mule deer hunting has changed in the sense of when I was 18 or 19, almost the entire West was on some type of over-the-counter tag opportunity. Draw hunts were, were very, very few. And the ones that were out there weren't even necessarily created to grow trophies. Um, like we, we have some, some draw hunts in Southern Idaho that have been down there since I was a kid. They weren't really put in place to grow trophies. It was because the, it's pretty roaded country and the deer were fairly, fairly vulnerable to over harvest. And so, you know, there, there was, there was those hunts, but you didn't even really think about them. You didn't even really want that tag because you had to go to that unit. Okay. And then, um, and everything else was, was kind of the same. And, you know, there's a, there's a book out there called Idaho's greatest mule deer. Um, and, um, Ryan Hatfield wrote it and he talks about it in the front of his book. People should go read it about 
back then, because everything was over the counter, people dispersed kind of naturally. You know, you weren't, you didn't like now you got to go hunt a certain unit, you know, and especially as a non-resident, you know, you, you're, you're kind of forced in, 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 into, into these things, you know, and you're hoping your research pays off and everything. Well, back then, you know, you kind of went where you knew if you're looking for big, big deer, you went to the Boone and Crockett counties. Those were all listed in, in the Boone and Crockett record books. And so back then there was more opportunity in that sense. And, um, um, the, nobody was really trying to grow big deer on purpose where now we've got counties that are being managed for big deer that are putting a few out, but they're not necessarily Boone and Crockett deer. You know, they're big twisted antlered looking things, you know, once in a while they'll throw out a book buck, but then we got these other counties that, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 Boone and Crockett bucks out of a single County since record keeping began. And so, you know, back then, like now everybody focuses on those counties. The draws in those counties are terrible. Um, you know, if, if they're even, if, if it's even possible to even get a tag, you know, and the ones that are over the counter, you know, there's just an, uh, um, a, 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 an unbalanced amount of pressure where back then the pressure kind of balanced out. People are surprised, you know, they think there's so many hunters now. There was tons of hunters when I was a kid. I, I think I've seen some numbers just in the last few years that Idaho deer hunter numbers are pretty level. I mean, going back decades and decades, but back then, um, you know, you weren't forced into a certain unit and, and people weren't quite as focused then they didn't have as good a gear and, and, and stuff like that. There, there was probably more casual hunters back then than there is now. And so that's changed. That's changed a little bit. I, I think that's kind of made it tougher, but but you know, we still got good bucks. I mean, I see them every year and not kill, I kill one every few years, but, um, you know, now it, you can't hunt as late. That's a big thing. And back then, you know, in Idaho, you, you know, the, the, the earliest it closed was the 8th of November. The latest it closed was the 15th to kind of depend on where, where Sunday fell in there. How many Sundays were in November is really what it got down to. And so, you know, I remember being a kid and the deer season opened in the third week of October. I mean, we'd go out opening day. It wasn't a big deal, but my dad was like, oh no, we're, we're waiting for that last week or two when the bucks went in the rut. And, you know, half the guys you'd ask them, they didn't even know when the rut was. And, and, and so you don't, you lost that opportunity now, Bo. Now that's all draw hunts. You have to mm -hmm. compete in the draws for that. And that's your one to 5% tags that you just can't even count on them anymore. I mean, there's a good chance you go your whole life and won't even get a hunt one Colorado back then. I mean, I remember just, there was no draw. You just, Oh, we want to go to Colorado this year. You know, 97% of the units were over the counter. You could go third season. There was no such thing as fourth season back then that came from their management in the, in the nineties where the, the two thousands where they came up with that. But, you know, there was just a lot more opportunity to, to go places where now, I mean, I just talked to a guy the other day that died in the wool mule deer hunter. He's from Nevada. No tag, dude. He doesn't have a tag anywhere in the West right now. And that's sad, yeah. you know, and you know, maybe he can find something, you know, he's, there's still some leftover stuff and some turn back tags. He's looking at all that, but I'm thinking I, 10 years ago, I wouldn't even have believed that that could even be possible. You know, there's leftover tags everywhere in great units 10 years ago. So, you know, I'm going on and on. Yeah. That's kind of what's changed a little bit there too. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine if like in my home state that I couldn't hunt whitetails because it was a draw, you know, like if yeah, I, that, but, that would, that would hurt. And then I can feel your guys' pain out there as far as that goes. Um, 
but I mean, it's it's like you like you were saying, you're still finding big deer, and yeah, you're still yeah. it's just probably yeah, changing a little bit of uh, I'm changing a little bit of your tactics a little bit. It is. It is. I can't just run all over the place, which might be a good thing too. I talk about that in my book, you know, that yeah. over the years, as I've gotten older, I've been able to focus more on things like that. And there's been times I've had too many tags, you know, I, I couldn't do a good job on any of them. You know, I really only need to be, need about one or two tags a year, I think to, cause that gets me focused and everything. And, but I'm just kind of feeling sorry for, for the guys, like I told you, my friend that he doesn't even get a go this year, yeah. you know, and, 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 and all that, I just can't believe we're at that, at that point. So in case I forget to say it, everybody interested in hunting mule deer, join the mule deer foundation. It's only 30 bucks a year. If they can do for mule deer, what the elk foundation did for elk, we'll be in good shape. Cause really what, what we're up against is there's just, you know, there's not big populations of mule deer thriving populations. The sky's not falling. I don't think they're going extinct, but you know, if we, if, if we were having better, healthier populations, there's going to be more tags and more opportunities. Yeah, definitely. I yeah, definitely suggest everyone go sign up for the mule deer foundation there. Uh, so, to to kind of transition here, I want to hear. Well, I I read it in your book, but I you want did, everybody yeah. else to hear the story of your first your first big mule deer buck that got you hooked because that story was pretty incredible. Awesome, man! Yeah, dude, it's a god story, and it's it's for real. I'll tell you what, I was uh, I was twenty seven years old in nineteen ninety six, and the story actually started in um, ninety four. Okay. And in a big way, I started in 92, 93, 92, 93 was a big killer winter that hit the West, uh, five years of drought. And then we got that killer winter and it was West wide. It just knocked the living crap out of mule deer. And sometimes that's a little hard for whitetail hunters to understand unless they live, you know, in, in, in big woods up North or something that, that a lot of times the winters are kind of what's managing our deer, even more than hunting pressure. And that winter just, just wiped us out. 93 was so bad like terrible. And, um, and I just started getting into big buck hunting a few years before that and was finding a few big bucks. Hadn't killed one yet, but you know, I was scouting, I was reading books. I was really getting into it. And, um, and so in 94, you know, after we all got our, our, our tail handed to us in 93, I just thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm going to go where I know and where I grew up hunting and I'm going to use all the resources I have, horses, everything to really double down and, and find a good buck because they're just, it was so tough then you just had, I, it was a good thing. Cause it got me in that mode. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to try harder. Guys were giving up. They were like, not even going to go deer hunt. They, you know, it was so bad, but I'm like, no, I'm going to do the opposite. And so in 94, I was scouting around and it's kind of funny after hard winters, you lose a lot of your population, but for whatever reason, that's when you see some of your best bucks that next two or three years. And it has to do with the bucks that survive the winter are typically the, you know, your bigger, heavier deer, you know, survival of the fittest, that whole thing's going on. And you get about two or three years out from a hard winter, even though your deer populations are low. Sometimes that's when I see some great bucks. So in 94, as I started scouting, deer were hard to find, but I was, I was finding some good bucks and, you know, still a pretty crappy hunter then. So the season closed without me killing a good buck, but, you know, got into some 30 inchers and where, you know, even like the year before, you know, we weren't even seeing any. And so 95, um, I found, um, uh, a, a giant, like a 35 inch outside spread, uh, buck, you know, probably pushing Boone and Crockett, um, all time, just a great buck. And I, I was going to, just hunt him, but there was another spot I wanted to check where I'd seen a 30 incher the year before. And I thought I should just go check it, see what's in there. 
you know, you just never know what's going to be out there. And, and, and I went in there and I just went in there for a morning and, uh, it was like five miles in on a horse and I spotted a really good buck. He was probably pushing 200 inches, um, not super wide, good boxy frame, just a good looking deer. Um, but he wasn't as, he scored better, but he wasn't as big as this other deer. This other deer was just wide, no cheaters, 35 inches. Just picture that. Um, yeah, you know, that's like a 29 inch whitetail with no cheaters, just yeah. a big, big buck. And so I put all my effort onto him in 95, hunted over 20 days straight um, on the mountain, never left the mountain 20 days. Don't recommend that for anybody. I, <laughs> I, I needed a counselor after that. I mean, really, I, 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 it, it, it wore me down. I never did get that buck. Um, and um, so the next year, 96, where this story picks up. And I just started making the rounds in the summer. I couldn't find that 35 incher again. And I thought, you know, I should go check on that other buck that I, that I saw last year. He was almost 200 then. And, um, uh, I packed in there. It was the 7th of August, a real, real cold night. That's always a good time to look for bucks the next morning and got up and glassing across the Canyon where I'd seen those bucks the year before, same place. And, uh, and man, sure enough, just as the sun was rising, this big son of a gun come walking over the ridge. And immediately I knew it was the same buck by the shape of his rack. And, um, and, and, you know, we'd have very good optics back then, you know, I was running a Leopold 20 power, you know, it's, um, it would be considered junk now. And, uh, man, I, I couldn't count all his points. Every time he would turn his head, there was another point sticking out, but, he was very recognizable because of his boxy frame and two big cheaters that he had, uh, at, at the, at the corner of his G, uh, G two and G three. So I thought, you know, that's him. That is a giant buck over two thirty. I am not going to find a bigger buck than that. That's the buck that I'm going to hunt. Okay. And so, um, in the book, I left this next little part out just to stay focused on that story. But there was, like I said, after those hard winters, there's some really big bucks around. So I found that buck the 7th of August. The plan was to hunt him in archery. Archery opened August 30th, and I started hunting him then. And um, blew up my bow three days into the hunt, shooting in camp, had to ride out. Um, get new cables put on my bow, rode back in. I ended up being in there eight days total, uh, not counting the days I rode out and never did see him. But dude, there was another Christmas tree looking buck running around in there. He looked like he had two pieces of sagebrush growing out of his head. And he was, um, he was kind of messed up. He was so old. Like he was, his rack wasn't growing right. He probably, other than his main beam and his regular points, he probably didn't have a, a point on him that was over an inch long, but they were everywhere. He probably had 30 points. So I'd seen him and there was another 30 incher in there, um, which could have been the buck I had seen a couple of years before. At least he was that kind of a buck. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, man, there's a lot of big bucks in here. I'm just going to focus on this. And so, um, but the, uh, I was home on the 15th of September and I had a friend that wanted to go scouting on some private ground. that's just East of Idaho Falls here. And it kind of gets hunted a lot. It's not super private. And you know, the guy will let people in, but my friend just, he just didn't know how to scout. He's like, man, you're always talking about these big bucks. Take me up there. So we went up there and this is just kind of a drive-in place, you know, walk a few sagebrush draws kind of a thing. And I said, let's, let's sit here and let it get light, you know, and then we'll, we're going to drive up this Canyon and, you know, get get on a high point. I'd been in there before, so I knew it a little bit. So just as it's getting light, we start driving up the Canyon. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. He's sitting in the middle and a different guy's driving. And, um, uh, the, 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 the driver says, man, there's a big bull elk standing right over here off the road. And of course I'm on the passenger side. I can't even see over what he's, what he's looking at. 
And I just grabbed the, the top of the roof, about a 77 Chevrolet, and just pulled myself out to look over the roof, and it was not a bull elk. It was a, about a 38-inch, 37, 38-inch buck, um, gigantic buck, walking up the hill, not 400 yards from us. And I mean, I'm just, I just can't even believe it. It's the, besides the buck I just saw a few weeks before that, the biggest buck I've ever seen. I'm like, no, you guys, that's a giant buck. And so, you know, we, we get out of the pickup and, you know, we're looking at it. I'm the only one with binoculars, you know, we're passing them around. And I'm like, that, that is a flipping giant. I cannot believe there's a, a, a buck like that living in here. So I forgot all about that high country buck. And, you know, my friend said, hey, I can get you in here to hunt you know, help me kill him. I don't care if you kill him. I mean, it was just an offer that was too good to pass up. And, and, and the season opened on October 5th, which was the same in that other place where that big buck was. So I went after this low country buck eight days later. So, so far I've hunted eight days for archery. Now I put in eight days for this buck. I never could find him. And a guy killed him that also had access to the ranch. That's how I knew how big he was. Ended up killing him on the eighth day, right where we saw him in the same canyon, except for across the canyon, literally a 500 yard rifle shot across the canyon. Guy drew, drove in there at two o'clock in the afternoon and this buck was standing up on the rim. And, and dude, I've been oh, in there oh. eight days and we missed that buck. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was crying. I could not, I could not <laughs> believe it. And um, uh, anyways, if anybody goes to my blog and go, goes back on there, they'll see that buck. It ended up being 37 inches wide. Oh my gosh. It was like a nine by 12. It ended up not scoring all that well. Cause it kind of had some funky points. It's points weren't real deep. And so by now, you know, whatever eight days past the 5th of October is what that's like the 13th or something, you know? And I'm like, gosh, I cannot believe that that, that buck got away. And the, the season's open till about 24th, I think. And so I'm home a day you know, got in touch with the boss, same guy I'm working for now. You know, he knows I'm a freaking nut and I'm like, Hey, I still need to go. I still need to deer hunt. I'm not going to be in. Um, I'm going to go after this high country buck. And I was home about a day, loaded the horses up the next day and headed for the high country, which would have been on the 14th. Our elk season opens on the 15th and that's when our mountains get really busy. And, um, as I'm riding that five miles back into where that buck was, man, there's elk camps everywhere. You know, there's guys camped along the bottom, you know, seven, eight horse traders at the trailhead. I'm like, oh crap, this mountain's going to be crawling with people. So I got back in there and it was, there was guys everywhere. Frick, I had to ask somebody if I could camp by them, you know, it was just, just not what I was hoping for. Of course, I'm still brokenhearted from losing that 37 incher and, um, you know, got camp set up real late on like midnight or something. I got to bed before the opener got up that morning, you know, typical Southeast Idaho elk guys everywhere. It was kind of crappy, but the weather turned on us that day. And, um, you know, that's about eight, 9,000 feet. And we started getting snow and a lot of those guys started pulling out and by about day three or four, there was me and one other camp down the drainage, about a half a mile, um, and an illegal outfitter guiding two guys from Texas. And, um, uh, so it was just us and they were only focused on elk, you know, and I'd stopped by their camp and talked with them a little bit. I could, I could tell they didn't know this buck was around, but they kept, every time I'd see them, they were kind of over there where he'd been. And, um, but I just kept at it. And I think I'd been there six or seven days and the snow was getting deep enough. It was, it was hard to walk in. And, um, I had been seeing a few other bucks and everything enough to keep it interesting, but I hadn't seen him. And keep in mind, this is now like the 20th of October, you know, August 7th to that was, but you know, a month and a half. 
you know, oh, oh, uh, to September 7th, no, two and a half months yeah. I've seen him, you know, and, you know, I'm just going on what I've learned about mule deer that no, he's right here somewhere. There's still deer here. They haven't migrated. It's secure. Even though there's a lot of hunters, there's a lot of cover. I'm just going to keep hunting here. So that's that story in the front of my book picks up with me tracking that buck. And I had, I had cut a big track at daylight that morning in that basin. And it was a big blocky sucker. And I thought, you know, this is him or it's that other buck that has all the funky points. Possibly it's that 30 incher, but he didn't have a super big body. And I thought this is one of those bucks and I'm getting on him. So I got on him and followed him down through the basin. And by where he was, I had seen that buck with all the funky points in a different place. that was about a half a mile away. And I just thought odds are this is that giant non-typical. And so I'm, I'm tracking him not a long time, maybe, you know, less than an hour. And, you know, you don't have, you're not going very far. It's pretty steep and everything. And the buck peeled off of the, uh, uh, of a rim and, and, and went down on North facing slope that, I just kind of figured he's probably going to bed up down here. It's not the rut yet. He's fed all morning. He's going somewhere. And all of a sudden he's slowing down on this slope. And I thought, man, I'm going to kill this buck. I mean, he's making big swings and, you know, stopping and eating. So I slowed way, way down. And I think I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to see him here any minute here and I'm, and I'm creeping along, you know, it's so steep. It's hard to stand up. You know, it's not like white tail country where you're just walking flat, you know, you're this kind of country. You're kind of, struggling to, to stay up and watch. And dude, I come across a set of boot tracks and I'm not right in the bucks tracks yet. You know, I'm kind of off to the side and here's these boot tracks. And I thought, man, I hope this guy walked through here before this buck came through. Um, and so I start following the buck track, the boot tracks, they go right to the bucks tracks and then they start following him. Like I am, I'm like, Oh, I cannot believe somebody just got on this buck. I cannot believe it. And I can just tell by how the guy's walking. Remember I said, you know, I'm kind of struggling to stay upright, you know, and I'm going really slow. This dude's just cruising. You know, I can just tell by his stride, you know, and he's falling down. I'm like, dude, you're going way too fast. You know, you're going to spook this buck. And, you know, and it just unfolded on the ground right in front of me. And as, as, I, as I didn't even go that far, maybe a hundred yards. And you could see uh, now the deer is bounding and he's running. That deer hadn't ran all morning. And, you know, and this guy's just, you know, he's not, he's not getting off his track. He's just like a bird dog right in the track. Yeah. And, and I, and I knew, okay, this guy just ran this freaking buck off the mountain and, and tracking out here is different. You don't just not everywhere, but the steep country, I, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're an Olympic athlete, you can't catch them. You cannot keep up with them. They can put, you know, eight hours of country between you and them in an hour, you know, that takes you eight hours to get through. It's just, and, and, and that's kind of what happened. And I just, I just was so bummed. I just could not believe that just happened. So I'm still down under this rim and I decide, well, I'm going to start hunting my way back to camp. It's getting to be about noon now, by the way, it's just snowing like crazy while this is going on. And so I climb up to the rim and, you know, that took me probably 30 minutes to climb up there on hot, sweaty, sitting down, you know, foot of snow, wet. And, you know, I'm just kind of bummed out and, 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 and I, and I knelt my head down on my knees and, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I love mule deer and I cry over mule deer when they get away. I cry. It, it, it hurts. <laughs> it's a punch in the gut when they get away. Cause you work so hard for them. And, and I just started praying. I wanted to give up. I'm like, I am 
done mule deer hunting. I lost a 37 inch buck last week. You know, this week I'm not going to get one deer season's almost over. You know, I don't even want to do this anymore, but I said, God, if you want me to do this, you got to give me the strength. You know, you just, cause I'm ready to quit. I'm done. And, um, you know, I got done and, you know, sat there a little while and I wasn't quite up on the rim yet. And I had to walk a little ways to, to get up there. And as I got up there, it kind of quit snowing a little bit. And it was like when, uh, you know, the, like it stopped snowing from the cloud, but there's all this floating snow around, you know, that's still kind of blowing around. It was like that. And there was some sun shining through the clouds a little bit. Freaking first time I'd seen this fun in like five days. And I thought, man, this is pretty good glassing conditions. So I'm kind of looking for a place to sit down. And in my naked eye, I, with my naked eye, I look down in the, in the brush and there's, there, there's a deer standing there. And I immediately could tell it was a big, big buck. Cause I could see, see big antlers with my naked eye. And I'm like, Holy crap, there's a big buck standing right there. So I threw the binoculars up and, and it was just like when I'd seen him in August, I immediately knew it was him. There's only one buck in this range. that's going to look like that, that, that is him. And he's standing there looking up past me and he had, he was about 300 yards away, by the way, 250 to 300, no range finders back then. And, um, he's look kind of looking up past me and I'm like, Oh crap, he may have seen me. And so I dropped down on my belly and just elbow crawled forward, trying to keep my, keep my rifle out of the snow. So I don't, I don't, um, pack my uh, scope full of snow. And, and, and I got up to a little rise propped up on my elbows and got on him. And, um, um, my binoculars were eight power my scope was like, uh, three to nine. And, um, I went ahead and turned the scope up, you know, cause he's in pretty thick brush and that, and he's a little bit hard to see. And man, I still dude. that was 25 years ago. And I still can close my eyes and see that big bastard standing there with that shiny snow, you know, glistening uh, uh, down and all the kind of the, the sun shining through the clouds. I mean, it was a God moment and there he was right there. And I had time to get on him. And, um, uh, I leveled off on him and fired and, um, he didn't move, which I'm, I, I'm not a great shot, but I was a terrible shot then. And, <laughs> and I thought, Oh crap, I just missed him. So I, so I, I racked another shell in there and I got back on him and, and, and he, he's kind of bunched up a little bit. Like he knows what's going on, but he's not losing his cool yet. I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I got one more shot. So I, I let her rip. Couldn't see him anymore. Nothing. What didn't seem draw, didn't seem run. Saw some other deer come out of those same quakies, you know, Aspen. Never saw him. I thought, okay, he turned either turned and went back in those trees and he's gone for the rest of my life, or I just killed that sucker. And then I'm just sitting there thinking, man, like five minutes ago, I was praying that I, I wanted to give this this crap up and look what just happened. Yeah. So I got up, hiked down the base, and I'm trying to keep my line of sight in case he gets up, you know, in case I haven't hit him. You know, sometimes they're confused, you know, and they don't run off. They're just hiding, you know, so I'm trying to get down there. I'm falling down, and, and, and I get down to where he was, and I can't see nothing. There's no deer. There's no nothing. I'm like, well, I think he was standing right here, and you know how it is when the snow's deep. It's hard to you can see their tracks, but you know, you, you can't tell if they're facing right or left or if they're running or walking. It was kind of like that. And plus it, like I said, I'd seen some other deer there. So I'm kind of looking around and all of a sudden, dude, I see like, like a drag trail when somebody drags a buck down to a road and you're driving along, you see that big blood, bloody looking yeah. thing. Like, it's like somebody ran a toboggan off the side of the road, dude, I saw it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I hit that sucker. And so I follow that little, 
um, you know, it's like a half pipe, you know, <laughs> follow it down with my eyes down there about 20 yards and it goes into some brush, but I still can't see him. So I, I remember I had to drop onto my butt to scoot down the hill. It was so steep in that little spot. That's why I fell when I hit him. And so I only went about 10 more yards and then I could see him and he had just dropped. Like I, I ended up hitting him right at the base of the neck. I don't know where that first shot went. That must just have been a hail Mary, you know? Um, uh, and I hit him in the base of the neck and just, just pile drive him. And man, he had slid down and his, his, um, uh, front legs were all caught up in his antlers. Like he had so many points as he was rolling, his legs got all twisted up in there. And so, man, I, I sat down next to that buck and, and I wasn't crying. But I was thanking God because, man, just 20 minutes before that, I was ready to swear off mule deer hunting for the rest of my life. And it was at that moment that I knew this, this is one of the things I was born to do because I just got, I just got confirmation from God. And this is the coolest thing that, I, you know, short of your kids being born and getting married. I mean, <laughs> life's upstairs here. I probably better talk a little quieter, but, but no, I mean, short of that kind of stuff, it was one of the most epic moments of my life. And I was hooked and I knew it that day. I mean, I had hunted six years hard for a big buck and had not killed one. And when I, and I'd hunted, you know, 20, but six years, six years, really, really focused on it. And I finally had one and dude, it did. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not over telling the story. It changed my life. It's yeah. why I'm so excited now. And when I tell that story, I still get fired. Oh, I could, I could tell. And it's, it's awesome. And it, what's, what's so awesome about that story is like the fact that you put in that much time and you wanted it so bad that you just kept going. And the hardest, the hardest thing that I've found with hunting is when you have something bad happen or as you perceive it as bad or an opportunity that's missed yep. that you, being able to pick yourself back up after it. Cause that's not easy whatsoever you know i mean i i, I had that's right i had a um i've told this story in the podcast before so i'll give you the abbreviated version but last year i was hunting a specific whitetail that was one of the biggest ones that i'd ever hunted and i had an opportunity at him on october the 30th which is about 30 days into the season at this point and i you know i at that point i hadn't taken that was my first day of vacation and i only got to hunt weekends and whenever else i could get into this spot and I had him at 15 yards on the ground chasing a doe. It was drawn back, had some brushing away, some other stuff. I didn't get the shot off in the two seconds that he stopped. And I just, in, in hindsight, there's a million things I should have done differently. But I just, I literally just got down on my knees and put my head in my hands and was like, this was my one chance. You yep. know? And, yep. and then f finally, after, you know, some, some words to myself and everything had just kind of, just mad and everything. I'm like, all right, well, throwing a little hissy fit isn't going to get you anywhere. So I made, I made myself climb up a tree, even if it wasn't in the ideal spot to finish off the day, kind of clear my head and just keep going with the season. It ended up taking me another 40 days before I killed my buck, which ended up being a different one that was almost as big, but it was, it was just incredible like once you finally get to that moment it's like when you think you think that you must have never hunted deer in your life before because you've struggled so much to that one yeah. point and then when it all comes together it's like all right this is why this is why you do it <laughs> that's why that's why giving up is so costly man you might be giving up your destiny you may you may just you know be like you said you spent 40 more days killed a buck nearly as big yeah you know you could have just given up and gone fishing yeah. And, um, 
Um, you know, so, so yeah, I'm with you, bro. That's why I say it's like a confirmation that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and through the hundreds of guys and girls that I've talked to on this podcast that are the ones that are consistently successful, all have that just never quit, just attitude like that. They're just so driven and just, you know, it's sometimes it comes down to that last day. It comes down to the last chance that you'd have and you got to be there. You got to still be, still be trying it. And, and I've, I've definitely picked that up out of your book and then hearing you tell the story here, like it's, it's, it's a different mindset. (laughs) Yeah, it is dude. I've killed most of my bucks in the last couple of days of seasons. Almost all of them. I've only killed I think one or two bucks on opening day, almost all of them have come later in the season because it's, it's just hard and you got to make a lot of mistakes or you, or, or even if you're not making mistakes, you just, it just takes a while to get things to go your way. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to transition a little bit here. One of the things I wanted to ask is you've talked about it a lot right here is using horses and, and stuff going in. So do you prefer, you know, going way back in the back country to find these big bucks or do you like to spend time from road camps and day hunting? Kind of give me some of the pros and cons you see with those, those different styles of camps. Well, I'll do it all. Um, I, I, I hunt what I call front country too. In fact, that's where my, my trail cameras are right now or it's in front country and it can grow great big honking deer too. Uh, the biggest deer I saw in the decade, 2010 to 2019 was actually a front country buck and um, you know, different things can come together that can just, they can just get big. And so I'm always looking at that. But all things being equal, I'd rather find one in the back country. And the back country's busy. I mean, there's still a lot of people around. I mean, you know, back 20 years ago, there were where there was nobody. Now there's a couple camps. I mean, that that's certainly happened. But I still would rather find a buck in that kind of country because I know I'm gonna have a chance to, you know, he's probably not gonna leave. Or some front sometimes front country bucks can relocate, you know. And um I'm probably going to have a little more chance to put my hunting skills to the test. And so, you know, probably we'll put it this way. I never hunt crappy spots. I mean, obviously, yeah. but you know, I, I killed two or three good bucks in in that decade from road camps, you know, a 191 muzzleloader buck, a 175 muzzleloader buck. Uh, I killed about a five-year-old 27-inch wide muzzleloader buck from actually from a road. Those were all muzzleloader hunts, just by coincidence, honestly, because I've hunted front country rifle hunts too. Archery, that big giant buck I was talking about. His name was Jalapeno, by the way. Um, <laughs> that, that was because uh, he was hot, dude. And he lived and he lived where it was hot. He was kind of a desert buck. And, um, you know, those were all front country bucks. But, you know, there's challenges that come along with that too. You usually get more goofed up by people on the front country, but I never ignore it. I don't want to just say I'm only a, a, only a backcountry hunter, but out of all those bucks I just named that were in front country, every single one of them was in a place that was still hard to get to, even though it was a road camp, you know, there was yeah. something, some barrier to entry, you know, blocked by private property or, you know, not a very good road system or, or just crappy deer hunting as in the average person would go in there and it was too thick. They couldn't glass, whatever. Um, so there's always got to be a barrier to entry there, but uh, you know, back to your question. Yeah. I, I prefer the back country. I mean, that's why I'm, 
we were out there this morning sweating our butts off bucking hay you know so we yeah. can feed this pack string and you know that that that's you know and i'm 52 years old i'm no freaking spring chicken you know i can't just go tearing all over the place you know i and and i'll, I'll backpack if i need to but you know i just I put my time in horses because I really feel like they tip the odds in my favor, especially at my age. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, one of the things that I thought was was really cool that you mentioned in your book was like your number one question people ask you is where to find mm-hmm. big mule deer. And you really stress the importance of the techniques and everything more than the where. And I'd like you to kind of explain that a little bit and then kind of how... And, and then, like, so say you're in an area, say you just pick a, a random unit that you're going into, or you have one you drew a tag and you're going in there, like, well, how to recognize, you know, big buck country versus, you know, that, that other people aren't visualizing. So I, I kind of had a well, couple questions there, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotcha. Well, remember how we opened this podcast. That's one of the things that drew me to mule deer is like, you can spend 50 years in great mule deer country and never kill a big buck. And so that, that's why it, I, it's not about the where there's lots of people hunting where there are big bucks, all these big bucks I've killed. I haven't killed one in a place where no one hunts. There's always someone around somewhere. Um, and so that's why I say it's, it's about the how, not the where the where is important. You can't go where it's crappy and there's no big bucks. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. That's super important. That's super important. But the, the, the cool thing about it is, to, to me, the mule deer hunting, why your skills are so important is because you can go to where there's a bunch of big bucks and not get one. You know, they, they are smart and they hide and, and, and that's where, where, where your skills, uh, come into play. And so, um, when, first of all, you know, you'd ask about if I go to a new unit or something like that. Um, I, I, I never go anywhere new for a hunt. And what I mean by that is I, if I have a new hunt, if I go, I'm going to a place I have never been, I am not the guy that shows up on opening day. All right. I'm the guy that is there summer preseason, you know, scouting, or at least working with people that know it, that 27 inch muzzleloader buck I killed a couple of years ago. I had not ever hunted that unit in that place, but I went with a guy and that's why I went with him. That is like, Hey, we know there's bucks here. We know there's bucks here. This is where they breed the does. This is where they summer. You know, I had all that stuff because even I can't just walk into a unit and go, Oh, you know, yeah, right over there on those three purple knobs. That's where we need to hunt. You know, I might be able to do that, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's so much country in mule deer country that doesn't have deer in it. You know, that's just one of our challenges and talking to whitetail hunters, it seems like that might be a little bit of a difference. It seems like whitetail are more evenly distributed throughout their, out their country. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talk to whitetail hunters where mule deer country, you have beautiful mule deer country with no mule deer in it. And so I'm always very careful about showing up in new places. Okay. I, I, that's why I scout so much and I will scout a migration hunt in the summer, even though there's no deer there, because I want to know how to get in it. You know, where's the best places to glass from. And, and I, and I'm just not a big Google earth guy because I just have to be there to look at it and see it and, and compare it to other places that, that I've seen. So I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but, um, recognizing big buck country, big buck country is always going to be, um, cut up varied terrain. They don't just live on flat plates. 
Um, they, and, and they also don't live in, in straight up. They're not goats. They don't live in straight up and down stuff. Um, it might feel straight up and down, but usually about 30, 35 degree slopes is about the steepest slopes. I typically find them on and that's steep by the way. Um, and, um, but it's cut up in the sense of it'll have a lot of terrain that's not easily easy to glass into. And so out of all these big bucks I've killed, I've the furthest I've ever killed a buck at is at 450 yards. Now to a whitetail hunter, that might sound like a mile, but to a Western hunter, that's not very far. We got little kids shooting 450 yards. That's, that's not that big of a deal, but I've killed all my, all my bucks in from that with an average range of probably about 150 to 200 yards, but that's because of where they live. You, you, you can either see them from a long, long ways away on the next mountain over, or you got to get right in there in, in the terrain they're living in to be able to see them. And, and when you do, they're usually fairly close. And so that's what I mean by kind of cut up terrain, varied terrain, coolies, um, little washes, little indentations in the mountain, cliffy stuff, you know, stuff like that. That's the stuff they're attracted to because I think that, you know, we're not their only predator and it gives them a lot of protection, you know, lions, bears, you know, stuff like that. And, um, uh, that, you know, you look at, you look at a deer, their biggest asset is their ears, you know, look, look at a mule deer's ears, you know, they're nine inches long. They're bigger than any, any of the, um, uh, other deer ears that are out there. And, um, and, and so I think they like to live in those places cause they can hear really well. They can hear people coming and stuff like that. And so that's part of recognizing big buck country. Um, it has to be semi-open to grow the foods that they need. And, um, you know, mule deer can live in wide open country. I find that unless it's a draw unit, there's, there's no big bucks in places like that because a modern rifleman can take them out. Um, but, um, you know, they, they like places like that because the sun hits the ground everywhere. They can eat a variety of, of herbs and forbs and plants that grow in that. Um, but you know, the bigger bucks tend to be around the cover. Um, and by cover, I'm talking about stuff that's taller than the deer that they can walk under. That could be anything from oak brush to high sage to um, lodgepole pine, spruce, but it's, it's going to still be broken in nature. It can't just be straight timber. All right. It doesn't, it's not going to grow enough food for them. Now they could go bed in it, but they're still going to have a place, you know, within a half a mile where they can get out on a, on a slope that receives sunlight. And, you know, that's, that's going to grow the plants that they need. You know, they, they, they have to have that. And so I, I'm taking that all into um, consideration when I'm trying to recognize big buck country. Um, it, 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 big bucks seem to like rocky country, but not pure rock. They can't eat rock, right? They're not goats. Okay. They're not licking moss off the rocks. So the ideal rocky country is from, from boulders, the size of a car down to boulders, smaller than a bowling ball mixed in green country that is growing the food that they need. I, I see a lot of big bucks, especially high country bucks in, in places like that. And, and also, so, but when I've talked to some guys they are like, Hey, you, you said Rocky country. And I went to this place and I didn't see any deer. And I'm thinking, yeah, that place is too rocky. It's yeah. all rock. You, you can't do that either. You know what I mean? Like go, go, go get a postcard of the maroon bells in Colorado of the, the actual maroon bells, the mountains that are right behind the lake there that are on like every postcard in Colorado. Those are too rocky, but I do happen to know those are within 
you know, a mile or two of really good buck country too, that, 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 that I've seen, you know, over the years. And so you gotta, you gotta be able to kind of rule out country. Remember when I said you can be in mule deer country and the deer aren't evenly dispersed. And I think that's what makes the challenge of it. Um, where when I talk to my whitetail buddies, you know, they're like, yeah, they're in the big woods and there's, you know, nine deer square per square mile, every single square mile. And I'm thinking, wow, in mule deer country, there might be 50 deer in this square mile. And then there's no more deer for five more miles. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that, that can be a little bit of a challenge too. And to me, the challenge in that is that country can look exactly the same that has deer in it as the deer that doesn't have deer in it. I, I can't explain it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's why, it's why I cover a lot of ground, you know, and try to, try to, try to, to, it's why I scout so much. It's, it's, it's my number one technique. I mean, I don't say that in the book, you know, I lay out the hunting techniques, but what precedes that in finding big deer for me is scouting and learning country. And, and ideally as, as some of these stories I've told, actually finding bucks preseason, that's the, that's the gold standard. But at least even if I'm not finding it, I'm out ruling out country that doesn't have deer in it. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm way ahead come opening day. So like what happens if like different conditions change, do things like, I know this year throughout a lot of the West there's drought conditions. Does mm-hmm. that, does that change things? Like say you go in yeah. depending on your preseason scouting, what if the high country, if you're hunting like a, an area of high country, what if the grass is all burnt, burn up and the food's not as green? Do they typically move to different areas because of that? Like the elk do, or do they typically kind of stay in their homes and find different things to feed on? Both um, dry years tend to be better hunting for me um, just on average. And it's hard to put my finger on why it just seems like I see more bucks on those years. It could be a matter, just a simple function that the feed is not in great shape. So they feed longer and more often Mm. or on a wet, a wet year. They just, you know, maybe they only have to feed two hours a day in the open. And on a dry year, they got to feed five. And again, these are just Robbie Denning, pull them out yeah, of yeah. theories. I mean, it just, it, it, I, I hate to just say, oh, it concentrates them around water because even on our driest years, especially high country bucks, that stream in the bottom never dries up, you know, and it's three miles long. Yeah. You know, it's, it's always going. So for me, I can't really say, well, water concentrated them, you know, cause the, the same amount of water's there now, obviously some of the springs and the seeps dry up, you know, and this is different for different elevations, low elevation. Like I got a trail camera right now and some really low elevation stuff right now. That's really hot. That's been hitting like a hundred and, you know, which is kind of normal for that country. And man, those deer are just nailing it every night. Every time I check that card, man, there, there are deer on it. And yet I have a camera in another place that may, that's higher that, um, may only pick up a few deer a year, you know, but I've got it there because it's a place where I've seen bucks. Um, I'm kind of getting lost on my answer here, but, no, but the dry years, yeah, the dry years, sorry. The dry years, um, for me, I just typically expect to see more deer and, um, part of this, it's weird. Everything is related to the weather bow. And typically if we have a dry year, it's because we've had a dry winter. And if we've had a dry winter, we typically have higher survival rates on deer. Okay. Remember I told you yep. that, that in much of the West, not all of it, 
but much of the West deer are controlled by how severe your winter is. And so if we're having a dry year, like we are this year, it's, we had a very mild winter, low snowpacks. So we had a higher survival rate of deer, more bucks made it through the winter, more does, more fawns. So consequently you see more of that year. And that, that is borne out in the data too, that on dry, on, on drought years, you're typically seeing your deer population grow. Um, it, it's kind of counterintuitive. You think it's yeah. smaller. It does at some point when the habitat really starts to get hammered, but you know, that can take a couple of, a couple of years, you know, for that to dry out. Cause you can be having a dry year and still have decent soil moisture and decent plant moisture, and it's still growing everything that they need. Okay. And so, so, um, but dry years typically, um, you know, I don't want to say I'm sitting water more or anything cause I don't sit water. There's hardly anywhere around here that's even worth sitting water. You know, there's, there's, there's just too much water. You wouldn't know where to sit. You know what I mean? Yep. And, um, you know, elk's a little different cause they're, they're not just coming to water. They're coming to wallows, you know, where, where, where grandpa's been peeing for 30 years and his grandpa and his grandpa, so they all go there. You know what I mean? That's different. That's different. But for mule deer, no, there's, they're hard. They don't bugle. They live in places with long streams, so it's it's really hard to kind of narrow down where they're going to be. Interesting, and and the reason the reason I asked that, well, one, just looking at the conditions out west and hearing from my buddies that live out there and how dry it is and stuff. But well, I remember hunting elk in Colorado in 2018, and it was super dry in the area I was hunting, and mm-hmm. and all of the elk seemed to like I'd find a sign where I was finding the years before, and it was just dried up. And then I'd spotted them on the private a couple thousand feet elevation down, you know, lower. They were out of the high country. There wasn't as much grass. You know, the grass yep. was kind of yep. brown. And so that's why I was just, I wasn't sure if, if that, those types of conditions affected mule deer as much as they do. Elk. They, they do on micro level conditions, you know, a certain range or something like that. You've probably got deer uh, responding to drought in that way. Yeah. But remember most of my deer hunting here occurs above 6,000 feet. And, um, you know, we, they're, they're snowpack. Even on a low snow year, you're still getting snow. And, you know, it, it's why you don't hear about antler growth being stunted in like the northern western states, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, unless it's a really low elevation stuff. Even on drought years, our deer antlers can be just fine compared to the southwest, yeah. Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. They can really get hammered because they don't get that high elevation snowpack, you know, and like yeah. like what we do. And so, you know, it's it's hard with a broad brush to kind of paint paint the west that way you gotta you gotta look at your at your kind of micro conditions in in each range and where i keep talking about where that trail camera is um that low elevation one that's one reason i put it there is because that's the only spring within about a mile or two and it seems like if there's a big buck around at some point he'll show up on that spring now there's other places to drink there's agriculture like a mile away and you know they're running sprinkler pivots you know i'm sure he's drinking down there and and, you know but you know what i'm getting at is you kind of have to learn your specific place area yep and you know there's a big ranch i manage east of town here where we run our i'm an outfitter to run our elk hunts and there's nowhere up there i could tell you to sit on water there's just too much water 
yeah. it was just too much. You just really, you really cannot predict where they're going to be. That's where your glass is going to help you the most. And even though that's pretty low elevation and the, the water sources certainly shrink and become less productive, they're still there. The deer aren't tied to it. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. And definitely yeah, the regional thing, I think is a, a good point that you had there. Cause I mean, even that year I moved to a different part of the unit that was still high country and it had, it was greener and everything was better and found elk, saw mule deer, everything that were living oh, yes. there, you know, just, yeah. and, and that was only, I don't know, 40 miles away. So it wasn't anything mm-hmm crazy that that can change that so that's that's a very very good but you know what bo you bring up a good a good a good point that you know you just said it well we went to this other spot 40 miles away and here they are well do you know how many people and i've been one of these people in my younger years are like you know we hunted a hunted elk up this drainage we didn't see an elk track in 10 days well that sounds pretty hardcore but the, the 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 elk hunters in the know will be like you stayed where there was no elk for 10 days. I mean, come on. Well, we had our wall tent set up and this is where grandpa used to hunt. Well, that's why you didn't get an elk. And so, you know, I'm not saying you go running all over the country, but like what your question said, you know, what, how do you adapt when things don't go as planned? You keep looking, you you know, if something's not working, go try something else. You know, I was trying to remember with, with, with deer, they leave tracks. They're they're not floating around the forest like Yoda, <laughs> you know? They leave tracks. And so maybe I can't glass them up. Maybe it's too thick. But if I've been there three or four days and there are no deer tracks here, I know I'm not just going to magically pull a buck out of my rear end. I, I need to move. I need to go somewhere else. Now, that's why scouting is so important to me because if I've been there and there has been a buck there, uh, okay, well, maybe I'm just not stepping where his track is, you know, but I got to have something to keep me there. Yeah. But if not, no, I'm like, you go move 40 miles. There'll be somewhere else that's better than where, where you're at. You know, don't just jump around. Yep. But don't just stick it out and suffer. And, and that was that was the year that I learned to have multiple, multiple backup spots planned out because mm-hmm. yep. I had hunted this spot for two years prior and I was finding elk and I that was the only spot I was scouting. And then all of a sudden I'm running back to town to get service to look at maps to try to find something else. And now I have it all laid out in a plan and where I'm, where I'm going to go, where's a backup spot, where are some different elevation spots within, you know, that if things are shifting and that was what really, I don't know, what really changed it for me was like just having those backup spots and just definitely made a, made a big difference, you know? And yeah. yeah. And I think how that would apply to deer is, you know, elk, elk are more mobile than deer, Mm -hmm. you know, elk can, pack up and say, we're going to move 11 miles and we're going to go feed over there. They'll do that. Bucks don't typically do that until the migration. Um, and so, but the concept is still the same. If there's no bucks in the area where you're at, there's probably none are going to show up. Okay. You, you need, you need to move, but I want to temper that just a little bit. Cause I've, I've had guys that are like, Hey man, I hunted down by Pocatello yesterday and tomorrow we're going to be over by twin falls. I'm like, dude, that's like 150 miles apart. You know how many deer you just drove by, you know, you need to, your, your backup plan for deer on the theme that you just gave needs to be other reliable spots that you've scouted or, you know, you know, somebody has hunted where, you know, definitely check here, you know, don't just run around blindly, you know, 
you, you'll, 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 you won't find anything that way either. You know, got to be careful, but you know, just like what you did have, have a backup plan, a reliable backup plan. Definitely. Well, the, the last thing I want to, I want to touch with you here is I had read an article of yours that you, I think you had posted quite a while ago on rock slide, but I had found it through Mark Livesey's uh, e-scouting course for elk, but he had, it was all about glassing and and you had wrote an article about glassing techniques and yes. as someone from the east that hunts the appalachian mountains it's thick there's not a whole lot of glassing going on so until i really got into western hunting i didn't understand glassing and some of the simple things i feel like can be overlooked and and i just wanted to kind of go through some of your your glassing techniques that you had if you were to to talk to somebody um to to because you're spending a lot of time behind the glass while you're mule deer hunting, am I correct there? Um, on the average day, um, probably somewhere between two to five, even six hours a day is 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 spent glassing, and you know I consider still hunting. Uh, moving through deer country, you know, maybe walking a few steps and lifting up my glasses, you know, and just kind of scan. And I consider that glassing too. It's not all just sitting on my butt, but that's, that's a lot of it. Um, was the article you read called uh, top 10 glassing mistakes? That would be it. Yeah. Well, I'll, you know, let's, let's just kind of go through that. Yeah. Um, and so the, 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 the biggest mistake and, 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 you kind of got to know your country to overcome this one, but it's still a good one is not planning your glassing strategy. Okay. And you, you, you know, a lot of guys have good optics. They'll, they'll head, they'll head to the deer country and then they just kind of poke along looking through their binoculars. And, you know, this gets back a little bit what we were talking about recognizing um, good buck country. But once you're in the country, you know, you need to have a strategy for like the morning when the sun's coming up, like what, what slopes on am I going to be able to see from where and have some type of strategy where I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch that slope. And, you know, if I've seen anything within an hour, I'm going to hoof it up this ridge, 150 yards and look at the backside of this mountain, you know, at least something like that mapped out on, on how are you going to, you're going to do that. You know, you don't just take your optics to the mountains and they suddenly start finding animals. No, you got to have a strategy and sun angle is a big one too. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. Um, and that's the other mistake is not using the sun to your advantage in the morning before the sun is up. If you're in mountainous country, um, you know, you got that magic 40 minutes before the sun comes up over the ridge. That That's when big bucks are very, very active. Okay. And you want to be looking as, as much country as you can. That gets back to your strategy. But you have to remember that once that sun comes over that ridge, you're going to lose a bunch of country that you can't see into. So if the sun is in, you know, um, um, in front of you at any angle between both shoulders, you know, so in that kind of 180, 160 degree right there, and you're looking into it, if the sun angle is low and it's just rising, I don't care what optics you have, you know, a very hard time seeing animals in those conditions, at least for a couple of hours until that sun actually gets a little bit higher. And so that's part of that strategy. And, um, but behind you, you know, so I'm talking about stuff in front of you, you can't see behind you, everything behind you, you are going to be able to see like with laser beam Superman vision because the sun angle is low traveling parallel to the ground and um, the deer are still active and they'll pop up 
like beacons out there. And so, you know, make sure the sun is at your back when glassing conditions get tough and you can't see in front of you. Turn around, make sure you have good deer country. That's again, part of your glassing strategy of, you know, where you're glassing, make sure there's, there, there's good deer country that you, that you can see when that sun is helping you out. And I've spotted bucks at nine miles with a Swarovski BTX and a good five or six with just a good spotting scope. Um, and you know, you're not counting their points and scoring them, but again, where I said that, problem with mule deer hunting there's a lot of country that doesn't hold mule deer you're, you're, you're able to rule out a bunch of country and be like okay well there's bucks on that mountainside right there and it might be three four miles away and i can't even go over there today you know i might have to go over there tomorrow but at least i know there's bucks there well that all got down to sun angle and stuff like that that buck i spotted at nine miles i had the sun at my back i was on one mountain range looking into another mountain range when i spotted him i'd have never done that without good good sun angle okay now that doesn't mean you can never glass into the sun. Okay. When you, if you think about it, once the sun angles, you know, getting a little higher, like maybe nine o'clock in the morning, if you're looking towards the sun, everything you're looking at is going to have shadows. Okay. And deer like shadows. In fact, if it's hot and dry and warm, they're typically in the shadows more than they are out on the open hillsides. In fact, if it's really wide open hillsides, I find that they're not even going to be out on those, you know, more than about 45 minutes after sunrise. They don't necessarily leave them, but they get into the edges and they're harder to see. But when you're looking into the shadows, that can be very effective too. You just have to remember, you're not going to be able to do it anytime you want. So, so, you know, definitely look into the shadows, study them when you can. Um, another mistake is not using the train to your advantage. And so that just more has to do with glassing angle. If I'm in the bottom of a drainage, looking up a drainage, I'm looking at what I call against the, 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 the grain of the terrain. Um, where if I'm at the top of the drainage looking down, you know, I've got hillsides that are below me. I can see very, very well into those. And, and, you know, and this can have to do with, you know, maybe, maybe you want to glass a hillside at the, at the top of a drainage. Um, and, and you might have to walk a mile or two to get to a great place to, so you're straight across from it or slightly above it, but, you know, definitely use the terrain to your advantage. And that one will become more clear as you get out there and you realize some places are just hard to glass. And, but if you change your angle, you can see a lot better. Okay. Um, not getting your optics steady. Oh, that is so huge. And man, I should have, I should have invested in tripods like 15 years ago because there was hardly anybody using them. And a lot of the outdoor riders have really been, um, uh, pitching them. We just published, I think we've published two tripod reviews on rock slide just in the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, Justin Crossley and Travis Bertrand and, and you know, cause we're always testing tripods because tripods are awesome if you can get your optics steady, you can see so much more. Now it doesn't, not only with a tripod, a lot of times your handhelds, you don't, you don't need a tripod, but you know, leaning against a tree, getting them against your knees. I certainly glass standing up a lot because there's some places you can't see over the brush in front of you unless you're standing, but I'm always trying to get my optics steady. I glass a lot off the barrel of my rifle. Nobody needs to send me a nasty email on this. I always um, uh, make sure there's not a shell in the chamber and, you know, I'll just rest them against my, um, against my barrel, even if it's just the side of the barrel, just something to steady them. Yep. Okay? It makes a big difference. And it's this, this, this surprises a lot of guys. I don't use 10 power binoculars. I use seven or eight power binoculars for that reason right there. I can get them steadier and they have a wider field of view. I won't argue with anybody that likes tens. If you're looking at a deer, you certainly can see more with a 10, but for me, it's more about finding deer than it is, you know, 
studying that little point that grew off his G2, you know, I can look at a deer and tell whether it's big or not. And so, um, um, lower power binoculars have been better for me because they, they, they get into that, um, uh, steadiness. Okay. You want me to keep going here? Yeah. Keep, keep going. These? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, uh, not being quiet while glassing. Oh dude, I have been burned on this so many times. You, I don't know if you're far enough in my book yet to read about ambush hunting. Ambush hunting is just taking your knowledge of the area, previous buck sightings, maybe, you know, things friends have told you or whatever, you're not seeing any bucks, but you decide I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait for the buck to show up. The buck's going to come to me rather than me go to the buck. That's a deadly technique, although it's very boring. Well, glassing is actually an ambush technique and you don't realize it, but if you go somewhere and you sit somewhere and you glass for three hours, there are animals around you that you don't even know are there. They're not even glassable. They might just be 300 yards down the hill, bedding under, you know, a little, a little maple tree. You didn't, didn't even see them down there. Well, if you're up there glassing and you're being quiet, those animals will get up and move around naturally. And I have screwed myself on several big bucks because I wasn't being quiet while I was glassing. One of them was like a, a big, nasty 28 inch muzzleloader buck um, down in Southeast Idaho about 15 years ago. And me and my buddy, he'd been sitting there. We'd only been sitting there about 45 minutes, but we were just making too much noise, you know, teasing each other, throwing wrappers at him and stuff, you know, getting up and walking around. And all of a sudden he goes, dude, there's a big buck right here below us. And, and I stood up because I couldn't see him when I was sitting down and I, I just kind of knelt up and looked down the hill and he was only about 190 yards, you know, muzzleloader range. And he was a good buck and he was with a doe and he just, he just walked up underneath us. Well, he had us pegged. We couldn't even get our guns on him and, and he took off. And that's happened to me several times. Um, you know, like I'll sit a long time in glass and then just get up and like, okay, I didn't see anything, you know, grab my pack and start walking. Boom, boom, boom. A deer's right in front of me running. So you want to remember to be really quiet while you're glassing. And when you get done glassing, don't just get up and walk to your next spot. I always stand up slowly and I always look around. Now you may have to do that a hundred times over three or four years, but one of those times, mark my words, there's going to be an animal in range that you would not have known about had you been being noisy and it could be, could be the buck of a lifetime. Um, moving your optics instead of your eyes. That's a big one. So, you know, you, you got to get your optics steady, but then don't, don't just move your optics across a hillside. This is another reason I like the lower power handhelds is because now I have this great big field of view that I can just move my eyes across and yep. just scan the hill. Okay. And I'm not a perfect gridder. I don't just lay every, the whole mountain out in a grid because some of it, I can just look at the mountain and go, there's not going to be any deer right there. I am not going to worry about that spot right there. But over here, this is a high odds area, you know, cliffy. It's got the right feed. It's so, you know, kind of rocky and green and, and I wouldn't plus look, there's a buck right there right now. I see a little four point standing down there. You know, I'm really going to get my optics steady. And then I am just going to move my eyes. I'm not going to move anything else on it. Um, these next two are kind of like contradictory, but the first one is glassing country too close. So, you know, if you've got a 20 to a 60 power spotting scope, you have got so much power there that you can't believe it. I have spotted deer at five and six miles with, with, with those optics. I spotted a, a, a really good buck in, in, in 98 at four miles with a crappy 20 power Leopold scope. And I write about it in my book and I could tell that his antlers were as high as the distance between his brisket 
and his withers, which is like 24 inches. That's a tall buck. I couldn't tell how wide he was because he was walking away. And I got a crack at a Boone and Crockett buck in that in that drainage the very next year because I had seen that buck there from four miles away the year before. And I decided to go in there and hunt it that year. So it, it, it's powerful to have those that, that at your disposal. But sometimes I find when guys have that stuff, they're still glass and country three, four or 500 yards away, half a mile away. They never really reach out there. Um, and, and, and so, you know, don't have all that high powered optics and then just look at the stuff that's within rifle range. But then that's the other mistake glassing too far. I've seen the opposite too, where people are only looking at stuff way, way far away. Remember I talked about you know, the ambush hunting, sometimes the animals are right there and that's why you need to be quiet, but definitely check all the stuff, uh, that's out there around you. David Long, um, in his first book, um, public land mule deer, the bottom line, he has a, a four phase glassing system. And one of those phases is looking at all the country really close to you. I think that's like his first phase, you know, check the stuff that's really, really close to you. And he's right. There's been so many times and I'm looking off on some peak in another drainage. I can't even get to for four days and you know, there's <laughs> three bucks down here embedded in the cliffs that I didn't even see, you know? Um, and so, so you can, you, you can glass too close and you can glass too far. You need to, you need to be thinking about all of it. Another one is just exposing yourself too much while glassing. Now I'm not talking about exposing yourself as in like a third, third degree misdemeanor. No, I'm talking about exposing yourself on the ridge and they can see you. We are so foreign to deer country. People just don't even, we just don't even realize, you know, we take our pace of life into deer country. We are nothing like deer. And, you know, they, I, I believe they, they have like four power binoculars on their eyes. You know, they can see a long ways away. And if you're not breaking up your outline, especially if you're on the skylines and stuff, um, they're going to see you. And even if you're not on the skyline, if you're just sitting out in the open glassing, and this is, and I, I, I keep learning this lesson and, and a deer moves and they, they come within range of you, you know, they're going to spot you. If you don't have your outline broke up and everything, even if you're not on a, on a skyline, they're, they're going to see you. So it pays to think about that just a little bit. And sometimes it's just moving three feet over and putting your back up against a bush or something, but definitely the obvious stuff, not sitting on the skyline. And I had some pictures in that article of the difference of, you know, of how easy a hunter is to see on the skyline versus one that's down. Um, I always think about that. Probably the last one I, th I think is a big mistake people make because they don't practice enough in the off season. Okay. I have binoculars in my truck. Even when I'm not scouting, I'm using them. I really did that a lot when I was younger. I'd drive people crazy. You know, I have a pair of binoculars in the truck, just going to town, but I was just always using them, always practicing and, um, glassing. I, I you're probably going to catch this in my book. I don't know if you've got to that, that far yet, but, um, I think there's stuff going on with glassing with your brain and your eyes that we don't even really understand. And, and this is what I mean by that is I've taken some pretty new deer hunters hunting. You're going to read about two guys in my book that were, that were blind in one eye and they were awesome at spotting deer, even on their first few trips out. I think it's a little bit of being able to see what's coming into your eyes and what you're paying attention to. And, um, you know, I've seen guys glass for years and they still can't see, see deer. And I don't know why, I don't know what they're looking at. I don't know if they're not slowing down. I mean, I mean, I really don't know, but I, again, back to those guys that only had one eye, you know, they were, they were slow. They didn't move their eyes a lot. You know, they were vision impaired, but they had no problem spotting deer. And so that just tells me there's something else going on in there that I, I think that, Time glassing 
and spending time looking at what's coming through your optics, not just scanning across the hillside, but you know, what's that, what's that, what's that shape, those kind of things. I think you kind of train your brain after a while, those things become automatic. In fact, I know they are because, you know, I've been with guys that are, you know, they're just, they're, they, they can see deer so easily optics or no optics. And, and I've been with guys that have been hunting for 30 years and, you know, they can't even see that woodpecker over on the tree until he makes yeah. a noise. You know, I'd say, I, I don't know. I really don't know, but I know that practice is the great equalizer. Use your optics a lot, slow down, use some of those tips I just talked about, and you will become a better glasser. I don't think glassing, proficient glassing is some, you know, thing for the gurus that only a few attain. I really don't. And, and that's why I bring up these guys that haven't glassed very much. I find if you know, I'll just spend a couple days with them pretty soon, they're showing me deer. They're like, hey, did you see that deer? Oh crap, I did. Oh yeah, you're, you're right. There's one right there. So it's already showing me that they're 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 getting their brain in tune with their eyes, and that just comes with practice. So spend a lot of time in the off season practicing. Look at deer, look at other animals, stuff like that. And I I, I guarantee you, you do a little bit of that, you'll see the animals spotted go up twenty five to fifty percent your first season. Interesting. No, I th- I, th- I thought that article was great. So I appreciate you going through it line by line because there's there's just so many points in there and if you can't see the animals you can't kill them so i mean that's (laughs) hey kurt darner had a chapter in his book you can't you can't if you can't see them you can't shoot them yeah exactly right you got to see them first that's what's that's what's cool about mule deer hunting is you know we're typically some variation of spot and stock we got to see them first yeah you know talk to my whitetail buddies they're like oh yeah i sat on the stand 40 hours and all of a sudden my whole life changed in seven seconds because he come walking up the trail and i killed him and I'm like, wow, I've killed deer four days after I've spotted them. You know, yeah. it's, it's two totally different games. <laughs> it <you know>? is. <clears throat> it, uh, it definitely is. But it's funny throughout all this stuff that you've said, though, there is there is some big similarities with big mule deer and big white tails, you know, security mm-hmm. cover, having that security, doing things differently than the other deer do, and just some other things that are, that you can pull. And then there's other things that are completely opposite. So it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, that's right. That's why I study all deer hunters. If you go to my rock, my blog on rock side, it's called the rock blog. You go back, you'll see I've re- reviewed multiple white tail books. I read them. I, I, I think deer are deer and there's always going to be some overlap and like what you just said, when you start talking about big deer, there's, there's a lot of, not, not everything's the same, obviously, but there's, yeah. there's some, there's some overlap. Definitely. Um, definitely. So Robbie, where can people find your book, hunting big mule deer, how to take the best buck of your life? The one that I'm currently reading, where can you find that at? Amazon's the easiest. It's not a signed copy from the author, but they can get you one in a couple of days. Um, and if you're, uh, if you have a Kindle, um, they're only like 10 bucks and you, and then the Kindle version is full color. The version you have is paperback. It's, it's black and white. Wish I could have afforded to go full color. Um, <laughs> so we can get them off of Amazon, just hunting big mule deer by Robbie Denning. It, it'll come right up. Um, or, and if you want a signed author copy, um, we sell them in the rock slide store, which is ROK slide.com rock slide. That's our, that's the, uh, online magazine forum that I co-own with Ryan Avery. We've got them in the store there. It can take a couple of weeks, get the order in. Then I ship them out from the house here. So would would love it if you want to up your mule deer game, even though it's called hunting big mule deer. I really think if you're just, just want to be a more successful mule deer hunter, even if you don't really care about the size of the bucks, then I, I know it's going to help you. I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely think so. I mean, my goal is to shoot some, uh, shoot a buck that looks like a mule deer buck. So like it's awesome. not, not the standards of, of that, but that's what I want to do. And I feel like by the the things I've learned in your book and everything else, like that's only going to, all it's going to do is help you. 
and maybe 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 get lucky with one of those big ones too. Yep, it will. It will, dude. I promise you, man. I'll, or I'll give your money back. Okay. <laughs> and, and I did want to say too, just uh, so Rock Slide, your the online magazine, the forum, and everything. That was one of the first resources that I had found back in 2016 when I started Western hunting, and I'd right. looked at a, a lot of forums, and that was really the only one I go back to. Just and not just saying this because you're on here, but it would just seem like. People were friendly on there. There was just mm-hmm. like a lot mm-hmm. of good interaction. Um, and it was, yeah, very, very helpful from, from gear to tactics to just about anything that was on there. I was, I, I really like it. And I love the, the articles too in the blog. And, um, it's, it's super, super helpful. So I'd definitely recommend someone check that out because it's, it's Ooh. definitely set apart from, from other forums. Well, thank you very much, dude. I appreciate the plug, but everything that you just said was by design. We really try to get rid of the trolls, you know, try to run a good forum. It's not that there's not some ugly stuff on there sometimes, but we don't put up with a lot. We're very welcoming to all hunters. It's not just trophy hunters or Western hunter. I mean, it's a Western site, but like yeah. I told you, you know, we have a whitetail uh, forum, you know, we, we really hunting's a big brotherhood and we try to treat it as such. So everybody's welcome. Now, if you're a big smart ass and, and, and you're ignorant, no, you're not welcome. You're not even going to make it a week. Our mods will kick you off, but, but it's a good, good place to come. I don't really think, and this is just, I mean, I realize I own a forum, but there's, you know, I'll give plugs to other forums. Randy Newberg's hunt talk is, is, is good, but I don't see how anybody can keep up with all that's going on in hunting without being a member of a good hunting forum. I, you know, I'm a co-owner. I still learn so much on rock slide is it's where I hear about the latest things that are going on tag changes, you know, state management, you know, wolf changes, stuff going on in my own state that I should be hearing on the news. I hear on rock slide first. And so I, you know, if people are afraid of forums, don't worry, it's not Facebook. You know, we, we, we tighten it down a lot, but I really think if you want to be a cutting edge hunter and stay informed, you need to join a forum. Yeah, definitely. So is there anywhere else, any other plugs you want to give for your own stuff or anything else where people can check you out at? Uh, just my blog on Rockslide. There's over 300 mule deer related articles and hunts on there. It's just at, uh, you can go to rockslide.com. You'll see our homepage. That's got articles from all of our staff, many of our members, but you'll see a little link to the rock blog. That's all my stuff on there. We've also got a growing YouTube channel. I think we just hit 10,000 this week. Um, some of my films are on there since I wrote my book in 2015. I've tried to, I've done three or four films kind of illustrating some of those techniques. Um, they're almost all under hunting big mule deer, but you can look at them on there. But, um, but a lot of the stuff that's on our, our YouTube channel, gear reviews, things like that. You know, if you're buying any gear, go to Rockslide first. There's a good chance one of our members or even our staff has, has used it and can kind of point you in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for right, coming buddy. on. I appreciate you staying on here and talking with me and, and, you know, teaching everybody else some of your lessons learned from, uh, many years of mule deer hunting awesome and man I'm, I'm i'm asking god for 20 more years because i love it man it's awesome so <laughs> i appreciate you having me on dude fist bump sorry about the <laughs> microsoft bunch of bull crap next time we're just going straight steve jobs product nothing else <laughs> i love it <laughs> <laughs> okay buddy thank you yep thank you 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.